In the spring of 1993, the New York Knicks were the number one seed out East, despite the defending world champion Chicago Bulls being in the same conference. The Knicks walked through the first round to face the fifth-seeded Charlotte Hornets in the conference semis. Your brain is currently scanning through your memory bank, but you can't place it, and that's fine. To be honest, I couldn't either. I didn't remember this at all, which is why I researched it and wrote this intro. The Knicks won their first two games, and Charlotte got their first at home chalk bracket through three. The Knicks got out to a seven-point halftime lead in game four before Charlotte slowly started to make their comeback. A Larry driving dish to Tyrone Muggsy Bogues got the Hornets within two, and a Larry Johnson shake and jumper tied it with 20-odd seconds left. Still nothing, right? You don't remember it. How about this? John Starks took the inbounds pass, and the Knicks ran a play to free up Hubert Davis, of all people. Anything? No? Well, maybe that's because Hubert Davis couldn't shake his defender, Kendall Gill. So he drove to the free throw line, stopped, and passed the ball to Rolando Blackman, who cut behind him, caught the ball ready, let it go, and canned it. Bottoms. Game winner. Knicks beat the Hornets at home, taking a commanding 3-1 series lead. So why the hell are we talking about a Rolando Blackman game winner? I'm almost certain you have no recollection of whatsoever. A personal first ballot and a special guest you need to hear coming up next. Welcome to First Ballot, the podcast that celebrates the moments in sports that really matter and decides whether they're good enough for induction into the First Ballot Hall of Fame. I'm your host, Neil, the podcast Jordan Clarkson, half Filipino, half not Filipino. I'm not the biggest Lakers fan. I am the best Lakers fan. My game has been compared to Anthony Mason. I am the one who compared it that way mr not always right but mr never ever wrong coming to you live from the shaquille o'neal office depot big and tall executive suite desk chair the first ballot hall of fame podcast is brought to you by the ball is life podcast network and today's episode could be sponsored by we don't have a sponsor yet but i want everyone listening to know today's episode could be sponsored by anyone but in specific Today's episode could be sponsored by my idea for a pop-up restaurant slash dinner theater based on the FX show, The Bear. I furiously posted this on social one night. I want to breathe new life into this idea here on the podcast. The idea is it's a pop-up restaurant. It can travel around the world. I don't really care. I just think it should start in New York City because of me. It is just the restaurant, The Bear from The Bear. The, the, you know, the Carmi starts on the show, uh, but I can eat there. You So you sit down and it's the restaurant, but everyone stays in character. So the cast is on premises, but they're staying in character. You don't really see them like, you know, maybe Richie's working in the front of the plays. 
Maybe you, you hear an argument from the back of the, the restaurants that their people are yelling at each other. You like see Carmi through a window. He's yelling at somebody. Maybe Fack is like walking through with a wrench. But everyone stays in character. But we all just eat and enjoy living in this world. I think that would be lovely. I think it's a great idea. FX, I'm giving it to you. You take that and then just turn around and advertise for it here on my show. I'd appreciate that. Let's make some money together. And while we're here, another bear-related concept of mind that I want to give some shine to. I, th- we should all pay Jeremy Allen White to just be Carmi. Here's how this works. We all get together. We pool our money. This is like a class action thing. We, we collect our money. We give it to Jeremy Allen White, the actor. And then Jeremy Allen White, in return for all the money that we as people give to him, agrees to never act in another thing again, which has nothing to do with his talent. Prodigiously talented. I really appreciate him in the show. But if he never acts again, then we all, as fans of the show, get to believe that he is Carmi. Do you hear what I'm saying? We get to take with us for the rest of our lives that he is real and that he exists and we can pull for him and love him. And I think that's a fantastic idea. And I'm not even asking Jeremy Allen White to act like Carmi out in the streets. He just he just can just be whoever he is. Just don't go around saying I'm Jeremy Allen White. That's all I'm saying. Just don't announce your name in public. Let us believe it. Don't break the thing. This is a great idea, right? I've done it again. Changed the world with another idea from my podcast. Rolando Blackman's game-winning shot in game four of the 1993 Eastern Conference NBA playoffs is undoubtedly a great sports moment. But is it a first belt Hall of Famer? We have to decide that today. And here to do it with me is a very special guest. I'm actually thrilled to meet her and talk with her. She picked this moment, which excites me to no end. I cannot wait to find out why we're talking about this very peculiar game. It's exactly the type of specificity that I love. This woman is an exceptionally talented and accomplished music producer. She's a television producer, writer, and perhaps most importantly, an activist. She was the vice president of A&R at Arista Records, reporting to Clive Davis. She was also the director of A&R at Def Jam and the general manager of John Legend's independent record label, where she oversaw the recording of, among others, Estelle's Grammy-winning single, American Boy. Here are some of the other names of the people she's worked with. Let's see if you know any of these folks. Aretha Franklin, Whitney Houston, Lauren Hill, Monica, Brandy, Carlos Santana, Q-Tip, M-E-T-H-O-D, Man, Mary J, and more. She is also the warrior featured in the HBO documentary On the Record. It's the brilliant, the brave, the inspirational Drew Dixon. Drew, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Best introduction ever. Thank you. I appreciate it. I can't believe, I got to be honest, I can't believe you agreed to do this. It seems like a waste of your time. I think you need to look into who's booking these things for you and really censure them. Okay. Oh, what was he? Well, I appreciate you uh, so much coming on and doing this. Uh, Your work in the music industry is so moving and inspirational. And for the record, I have zero music talent. I'm completely fascinated by music, by anyone that touches music. I want, I can't wait to talk about music in your career. I, I want to ask about all the special little moments in your work. But first, can we set the table? We need to learn a bit more about Drew Dixon, who you are. Let's mm-hmm. table set. What is your favorite sport, your favorite team, and your favorite athlete of all time? Wow. Favorite sport, basketball, for sure. Fantastic. 
I played basketball from fourth grade through 12th grade. Amazing. <laughs> Spent a lot of time on the bench in fourth and fifth grade, but ready to go in at any time. Let's go. <laughs> and therefore, I became completely obsessed with the mechanics of the game. <laughs> Ultimately became a starting center because I was tall. Unreal. And then suddenly had to handle the ball in 11th and 12th grade. I was already on varsity, but I was like, wait, no, outlet pass, rebound, nothing, jump shot, corner. So that wasn't great. And that was sort of the end of my basketball career, oh. but I still love the game. Amazing. Uh, uh, and then you, you're, do you have a favorite team? So this is tough. You know, I, you know, was a Knicks fan when I first got to New York, mm -hmm. grew up in DC, never loved the bullets. I'm going to be honest. My home team was the Redskins, which I know we're not supposed to say anymore. Right. So then in New York, I adopted the Knicks, loved the Knicks and then fell out of love with the Knicks when they a got rid of Jeremy Lin. I was really mad about that. Yes. And then I also moved to Brooklyn. Well, I, I was in Brooklyn, but then the Nets came to Brooklyn right. at the same time. And so then I we got season tickets, and I'm trying to be a Nets fan. I would be lying if I said I was really a Nets fan. You know, um, I thought about just converting and becoming a Lakers fan, which is kind of hard as a former Knicks fan. No, no, no. But I have family. My uncle was Walt Hazard. So wait, well, now hold on. I didn't know this. <laughs> First off, I want to be clear. You, I am welcoming you, and, and you, uh, uh, you can come right onto the Lakers bandwagon. You can be a fan right <laughs> alongside me. It's my favorite team. It's the only team I care about. I said this earlier. I'm not the biggest Lakers fan. I am the best Lakers fan. That's that is ha that has been publicly uh, supported by every other Laker fan uh, that I'm a fantastic fan of the team. So I, I'm uh, willing to have you on. Your uncle is Walt Hazard. My uncle's Walt Hazard. Oh he my married gosh. my aunt Jalisa, who was the first black cheerleader at the at UCLA. Amazing. And they got married. They have four sons. Um, and um, yeah, my aunt Jalisa was actually the person that introduced me to the person who is why the Rolando Blackman moment is oh, my big wait. moment. So oh, we're gonna come full circle there. But yes, um, Lakers. Yes, are, it's 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 in the family. Amazing. But I'm an East Coast girl, so I, I've never fully committed. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite athlete? Is there one athlete that sticks out? Any sport, anyone that you're drawn to? You know, I mean, this, again, it's tough. I Jumping around, again, another team, watching Jordan play, mm -hmm. maybe one of the best things I've, like, ever seen in my whole yes. entire life. Yes. Um, like, almost, like, up there with, like, a rock concert. Yes. Just, like, it's it was beyond – I love Serena Williams. I love the serve. Mm. I love the mental toughness. Mm. I love the focus. You know, um, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with Serena. It's a fantastic answer. You can't go wrong, Serena Williams. And you know, I think you started to say it, and I feel the same way. And I don't know if it's age, my own age, but the older I get, the more I go like like someone like even Serena. I look at and go. How, how lucky am I that I didn't just get to live through her, but that I was old enough to kind of understand a lot of what she was happening yeah. and some of what she went through. Obviously, no. I'm not a, a woman and nor am I a black woman, but to sort of appreciate to be old enough to appreciate what she's accomplished feels really special. Like and again, I, I sort of have only gotten that as I've gotten older, the 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 wherewithal to sort of go. Holy shit, pardon my French. She's not just a phenomenal athlete and tennis player, but she's done this as a black woman in this country, which seems impossible. 
As a black woman in this country who never tried to disappear into mm. the culture mm. of not just white America in general, but specifically tennis, yes. which is literally the tennis whites, mm-hmm. you know, and what I admire is that she played by their rules on the court mm. and dominated, but changed the rules off the court <sighs> and made room for herself and her authentic self kicking in the door for so many people who clearly are now following in her footsteps. A great, a great. And her sister got to shout them both out. Yes. A great sentence. And it's also the other thing is like, it feels like the media and people in this country were, were trying to take uh, the father and make an example of him and Mm. talk down on him. And like, that was sort of their entry into this world was people attacking their father and coach. And for them to withstand that is just a whole other wrinkle. Like how many people, when someone starts to attack their father would have been like, you know what? I don't want this. This isn't, I, I don't need this. I don't need this to happen to my father. And for them to stick through it as a family and to achieve what they've achieved. It's just unbelievable focus. The mental toughness on and off the court, really extraordinary. And the obvious, the incredible talent just beyond. Um, Can I quickly tell the story of how I quote unquote met you? Sure. I've never met you. We don't know each other. (laughs) I got fed the clip of you telling the story of your role in the Method Man, Mary J. Blige song. I'll be there for you slash you're all I need to get by. Can you tell that story quickly i'd so appreciate it (laughs) absolutely so i'm so glad that you kind of sort of met me through that story (laughs) and i'm happy to run it back thank you back in i guess 93 maybe i was um 22 years old working at def jam that was my dream job i came to new york from stanford to make rap records answered phones at three different places and finally got my dream job as an a&r person at def jam and even though I was supposed to be an A&R person, which stands for artist and repertoire, which means you sign artists right. and you find repertoire or songs for the artists on the label, mm. I was relegated immediately to administrative work, even though I was not hired to do that. Nobody kind of knew what to do with me because Russell was never there. He didn't have an office. He was like in his car or like at a restaurant. And I was just there and I was kind of like happy to be in the building. It's Def right. Jam. And I was given the credits for Method Man's album to Cal to type up and basically go through a stack of papers that had all the credits and all the sample clearances and basically put them like in a rubber band around the tape, send it to Polygram so they could then press up the albums. Got it. And of course, obviously, I want to be careful and make sure that I'm doing this properly. So... I listen to the tape with the album as I'm going through the stack of papers to make sure it's all matching up. I was not supposed to do anything other than that. And I get to this interlude that's actually no longer on the album because they retroactively took it off. I think the first pressing though, it might still be there. That's my theory. Um, But so I'm listening to the album and it was just an interlude that was shorty. I'm there for you. Anytime you need me for real girl, it's me and your world. Believe me, not make a man feel better than a woman. Queen with a crown that be down for whatever that. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what? Oh my God. Stop like scratch record scratch. (laughs) Like what the hell is that? And so I like can't continue my job because I'm just like, that is amazing. Like that is beautiful. Like, It was so loving and like just this ode to his girl that was like 
not trying to be cool and it wasn't about sex and it wasn't objectifying her. It was, and I got mad love to give. It was just like, you know, a queen, you know, all of it. And so I couldn't move on. So I, I called Russell because, you know, that's how I did my job. Like you call him and you try to get somebody at his apartment or somewhere to like patch you in the driver. And he's basically like, yeah, no, like definitely not like, no, what? No, what the fuck? No, it's done. The record, it's like on the schedule. Like all you're supposed to do is like right. send the paperwork. <laughs> it is, Bring the pain was already out. We had a, uh, it was a single bring the pain was out before I got to death. Right. Before I got the job. So I was like, okay, okay, fine. Whatever. I guess like, I don't want to like blow it. I just got here. Let me just move on. Right. But I couldn't move on. So uh, I take, the, I'm not really, I don't know if I'm supposed to take it home. I take it home and I'm listening to it. And I was actually reminded by D'Angelo, who I was really cool with back then. He was recording Brown Sugar, which isn't uh, even out yet at the time. Uh, he saw on the record and called me. He's like, I remember that. You kept playing it again and again. And you were obsessed with the last line, which was, you my nigga. Right. Because it's not, you're my bitch. Right. It's you're my nigga. Like right. you, like we homies, yo. Like here to here. And I even forgot that. He was like, oh my God, Drew, I'll never forget it. You were like, this has to be a record. This can't just be an interlude. No one's going to hear it. So I couldn't let it go. So then we're actually, I don't know if I've ever even told this part of the story. We're out in the Hamptons because Russell goes to the Hamptons and like he rents a house out there. And at one point, the whole A&R department was like flown out to the Hamptons on a chopper with Lior Cohen. And we're having an A&R meeting by the pool in the Hamptons where Russell is floating around in an, in an inner tube and we're all at the table and I bring it up again. Right. I'm like, okay, I know Ugh. that you said no, but now that everyone's here, I'm going to try again. Yeah. Like, here is an idea. Okay. I get that you said it's too late because the album is done and I sent it to Polygram and I get it. And But what if we, hear me out, make it a remix and put it on the B side of whatever right. the second single is going to be. Got it. Because that's not pressed up yet. Right. And we haven't even picked the second single yet. That's part right. of what we were talking about in the meeting. I was like, okay, that's my way in. Right. And like, we just call it a remix, even though it's not a remix, because right, right, it right, isn't right, really right. a remix of anything. But right. what if we get a, a female vocalist to sing on it? And then people will hear it. Because then it'll be a song. And then this interlude won't like be like the tree that falls in the woods that right. never makes a sound. Right. So they were like, okay, okay. Like, fine. Like, wow. Like you won't let this go. Who do you think it should be? And I said, well, I have an idea, but I don't know how to get oh my her, God. Oh my but God. I can ask my friend if oh. she'll do it. And they're like, well, who's your friend? I was like, Lauren Hill. They were like, Russell was like, who the fuck is Lauren Hill? I was like, okay, 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 fine. Never mind. Okay. How about, Here's who I really think it should be, but I don't know her. Ugh. Can you guys help me get Mary J. Blige to do oh it? Oh, my God. And they were like, uh, Russell was like, okay, here's here's the thing. If you can get Mary, I will let you fucking do oh this. Oh, my okay? God. Just try. Okay, and then can we move on? <laughs> so I go back to New York. You know, we all flew back. And I called Puff and I left the message and I said, you know, I guess I, I was like, I'm coming by. I'm going to drop this dat tape off. Yeah. So I dropped the dad off at Bad Boy and I come back to Def Jam and there's a voice note on my, like a, you know, voice message on my answering machine. 
and it's pop. And he's like, yo, this shit is crazy. This is dope. Oh like, God. oh my God, you're right. This has to be a thing. And then I called him and that's when he was like, I have an idea. Do you know the song You're All I Need to Get By by Marvin and Tammy Terrell? And I'm like, sure. He's like, can you sing the woman's part? So I sing Tammy's part. You're and then on the like, phone hey. singing this. Oh yeah, I'm on with Puffy. Oh. He's like, imagine the children's story track. So I'm like, you're all I need. Oh and he's like, doom, 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 shorty, I'm there. I was like, oh my God. So oh my God. I tell Russell that Puffy's going to get married. <laughs> And then he's like, okay, I'll tell Eeyore to open up a budget. Oh. I booked the old hit factory. Mary cuts her vocal and Puffy starts making the whole record. And then it's an issue because Lior's like, yo, 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 what are you guys doing? Like RZA controls Method Man's album. We can't just make shit up. Like right. RZA's the executive right. producer. Right. Legally, we can't do anything without his permission. And he didn't approve this. This is like Drew's random ass idea. <laughs> So he was like, okay, okay, here's what we're going to do. Drew, get the reels, like the big two-inch reels yeah, yeah, yeah. from the hip factory. Bring them to Chung King because that's where RZA works. Tell him that you just got Puffy to do the vocals for Mary. Oh. And then he can do the remix and just right. let it be his right. remix. Right. And that's why there were two remixes. So like for got a it. week, I would let RZA record during the oh. uh, day rewind the tapes, take them to the hit factory. Puffy would record, uh, rewind. Like we had a pencil exactly to the point because RZA couldn't know right. that Puffy was still touching right. the tapes. Uh, and then eventually it was like, okay, this is dope. This has to be a video. And then it was like, okay, the video is going to be to RZA's version because RZA is the yeah, producer. He's yeah. freaking RZA. And Puffy's will just be an alternate track. And that's literally how it happened. And then oh I like didn't get the credit. But I was shocked. Like I didn't know that that was a thing. Like how is this not right. like how am I not at least an AR person? Like now right. I tell the story, people are like you should be a producer. And I didn't even didn't even occur to me that that wouldn't be like worked out by the higher yes, up. That's right. I'm not even. I wasn't even the wiki. I don't even know to this day if I'm in the Wikipedia for that song. Like the last I checked, I wasn't. What? And that was like a couple of months ago. So. I was erased from that whole story until On the Record came out. And I told the story in the film. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, it was like I would hear that song and be like in a taxi with my kids. And I'd be like, guys, oh my God. never mind. And oh I just my God. tell the story. What? I have so many things to say. I don't, God, I like, this is like, I'm going to like, we're going to record this for two hours and we're going to talk about Rolando Blockman for like four minutes. <laughs> the, the, I, first off, I could listen to you tell stories forever. <laughs> you ever want to tell stories, let's hop on and I'll just listen to you tell the story. I think you're so engaging as a storyteller and that's what immediately drew me to you when I saw that clip. The second thing I want to say is this show is ultimately about moments special mm -hmm. moments Th that song to me is absolutely legendary it is that when i met my wife she made me a a, a mix cd and okay. she put that song yeah. on the cd and i and it made me think maybe this lady is very cool like maybe she gets it because this song is on there to me i think about that song and i go let me put it this way in my opinion music is the thing that makes you it's the only thing that can make you live forever 
that a good song is a good song and you can feel it inside your body and yeah. you'll feel it forever. Yeah. Do you ever think about the fact that your that that moment that you went through hearing that thing and having the gall, the audacity to go, wait a minute, this should be a song and then doing it again as a 22 year old in front of all these other people that in theory you should be intimidated by that moment led to a song that is eternal. Mm. Do you think about that? You've created, yeah. your work has created something that will exist forever. The, my grandchildren's grandchildren will listen to that song and go, God damn, that's a good song. And it's without fail. Wow. You know, I'm going to go back to rebounding. I really, you know, I learned to get there in the paint, mm. plant myself. Ugh. Get the rebound and crash the boards and crash the boards and crash the boards till I got to or until I went to the line. The Ugh. end. And then I wouldn't even notice until the end of the game that I had like two jam fingers and a sprained ankle. Ugh. I was in the zone. And that's how I was when I heard that interlude. It's like I am going to go up and I'm going to go up and I'm going to keep going up until I find the two. And so it's that's kind of it's it's. The rebounder mentality, you know, that's all I can say is kind of how I move in the world. First off, you completely get this show. To tie this back into sports is <laughs> brilliant. But where, do you, where does that come from, though? Where does that approach, that mentality to get in the paint and do the dirty work and rebound and try and try again, where does that come from? You know, I've thought about this. I, you know, I grew up as the daughter of two politicians in D.C., like local black politicians who even before D.C. had a local government, it used to be that they just like appointed the mayor. Mm -hmm. And like we were just like we didn't even get to choose when I was literally four years old. I think D.C. got home rule. Got so when I was really, really little, meaning we could vote for yes. our own mayor right. and city council people. I was passing out flyers. Um, I mean, I was, I mean, three, four men, the crack and the Liberty bell, DC mm. home rule now. Mm. So like that. And then my dad became the first war for city councilman, a chairman of the city council. My mom became the mayor. And so I grew up knocking on doors, like four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, Ugh. knocking on doors, vote for my daddy, number three in the ballot. And people would be like, some people like, great. I love your dad. Some people like, yo, I hate your father. Right. Slam the door in my face. And I would look back at the car or whatever, and it was like, next house. Right. So I went to the next house. And I don't know. Like, it was just sort of like, I don't, next house. Like, I, you know, I don't know. Like, no isn't, I mean, you know, like, just failure isn't an option. You know, like, you know, I was a video game head as a kid. Like, you know, I once, it's embarrassing, but once when I was at Def Jam, I was trying to play, it's say, it was Sonic the Hedgehog too. It's not even a cool game, although I love the NBA Jam. <laughs> this one particular weekend, I played the same Sonic game oh. from Friday night until Monday morning when I had oh to go to school God. and to go to work. And keep in mind, back then you can only pause for five <laughs> right, minutes maximum. Right. <laughs> but I had to finish the, the entire game. And so I learned where all the extra men were. Right. And every right. board, I, right. so by the end of the game, <sighs> I had like 100 extra men. And I basically just committed suicide in the last <laughs> board until I figured out right. how to like hop from the plane to right. the cloud <laughs> to whatever I had to do to win. Like that's, it's the rebounder. Again, like I always, I love a rebounder. I love, you know, I love that scrappy, mm -hmm you know, board crasher. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, or soccer. I learned soccer. My, my goddaughter was a big soccer player. So in order to like be part of her life, I had to learn the game and she became a striker. And even like the tenacity it takes to find the back of the net, Mm -hmm. like you have to get in a zone at a certain point Mm -hmm. to find the back of the net like that. I can't explain it, but it is literally, if you know nothing else about me, music, yes, activism, yes, mom, yes, I will come up with the board. <laughs> oh, God. You, 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 this is such, this is already such a special episode. I really appreciate you agreeing to do this and sharing this type of mm. information and stories. It just feels special. It just feels special to get the chance to talk to you and meet you. And I really appreciate it. Thank so thank you, you for doing it. Um, do you, where, so you, you mentioned, so you go, you mentioned the music, you know, we talked about your, your, you know, uh, your, your fortitude, your, your stick-to-itiveness, et cetera. But the, 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 where does the musical talent come from? Did you grow up playing music? Where does your sort of ability to sort of feel and read, you know, a musical moment and, 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 you know, peace and be able to direct it one way or the other, where does that come from? So, you know, I, I, I played piano a little bit as a, as a young kid, um, piano lessons were kind of a casualty of political campaigns. However, I never got to really stay with it, but I always responded to music like very intensely. So I say that as a kid, music was my drug of choice, Mm -mm. you know, like I would create mixtapes and it was almost like a cocktail menu. Like I could in, in the 90 minutes or the 60 minutes, however long the runtime was, I knew that I could sort of get from emotion A to emotion B at the end of that journey. And I just, I, I can't explain it. Like I can hear it. Mm-hmm. I can, it's like a dog whistle, you know, I can hear little things. Like I, I, I didn't realize not everybody can do this, but in a meetings, even with like artists, like I'd hear a song once and then I'd like comment on some obscure line or some like, Oh, I love that hat that you guys yeah, yeah, use yeah. Yeah. in the bridge or the brush. And they were like, how did you hear right, that? And right. I can't explain it. I can just Ugh. hear it. And I, it moves me mm. and, and then I can't unhear it or I can even hear what something can be like that interlude, but a demo. And then I can't un in, mm. I can't, unhear its potential and then i just have to help the artist get to the you know the promised land and that's kind of how i always did my job that's fascinating and i i feel like the take home at least for me i don't want to tell the listeners how to what to think but the take one of the take homes i'm getting from you right away is to is to feel what moves you and to go after it to listen to that Mm-hmm. And and that's something that I'm I'm uh, you know trying myself to do in my own my own business and life and and I, yeah. I just think that's those are wise words. Uh, uh, now again, uh, well hold on before I move on. Are there any? I don't mean I feel almost bad even asking you this because I don't want to just like throw all the work on your lap and be like, okay, tell me another story. But do you have like a favorite moment from your career from the work you've done? Is there like a moment in your career that you go? Gosh, that was a lot of fun to be there that night, to be at this thing, to speak to these people, to talk to this artist, to find this artist for the first time. Is there a moment that you go, man, that was so much fun? I I hung up with Lauren a lot when she was making The Miseducation. And it was during that time that she played A Rose is Still a Rose for me, mm-hmm. which I then brought in to Clive Davis for Aretha. Mm-hmm. And then I actually fought for her to be the producer 
And that was just really fun to be part of. You know, I, I, I was, you know, I knew Wyclef through Lauren and sort of that squad. And he played My Love Is Your Love for me, which we brought in for, you know, I, I brought in for Clive and obviously, you know, Whitney recorded My Love Is Your Love. Clef also gave me Maria Maria for Carlos Santana. Um, but if I had to sort of say the most fun, it was probably like the, the, the Lauren days, you know, like there was one session where Whitney was three days late days and it was for a cover idea that Lauren had of Stevie wonders. I was made to love her, but it was, I was made to love him. Uh, it's at the, it's on the, my love is your yes, album. Yes. My love is your love album. And Whitney was three days late. It was actually crazy because I was supposed to go on a vacation with my cousin who was like doing an overseas thing. And she was like alone in Rome and her parents were mad at me because I was like, but it's, it's Whitney. I can't mm-hmm. like leave. And, but then when Whitney got there, like she absolutely, she had studied the song. She understood the assignment. She walked in like one take, nailed the vocal, was like, okay, open up another track. Uh, she had ad lib ideas, open up another track. Uh, she had harmony ideas. And then obviously Lauren has crazy right. harmonies. And the two of them together, like oh bouncing off of each other. That was really fun. That was a really, really fun time. And, you know, honestly, Q-Tips album. I was, you know, fortunate enough to sign Q-Tips to a solo deal when he left Tribe and, you know, Vibrant Thing was, you know, I was hanging out in the studio with him when he made Vibrant Thing, but oh like Breathe and Stop. God. And, you know, that album <laughs> was just really fun. And he was, you know, fun to hang out with, like hanging out at Moomba. That's when he was like friends with Leonardo DiCaprio. Like, <laughs> like I literally had to pick him up from the precinct one because he got arrested because he lunged at the paparazzi oh. when, when he was hanging out with Leo. And like, I got the call. I guess I was the one phone call. So, I was oh. going to pick up and he's like, can you stop at Acme and get some fried chicken? So I get fried chicken <laughs> and I bring it to the police station. And he's like, he's like, what is it called? Like, uh, you know, like handcuffed by one wrist to like a chair, but he's like in the area with the cops and was like talking with them. They were like tribe fans. And, you know, it was like, they were like, okay, okay. Like you can go now. But anyway, that oh. was just, that was a fun and you know crazy time. <laughs> I I, I want to say you would make my favorite podcast of all time. If you started making a podcast right now, it would be the podcast I never miss an episode of, and I want you to know that now publicly on the show. The second thing I want to say is I'm fascinated. I have a buddy named Michael Torp who's a successful working actor. He's been on the show before. Mm. He and I talk all the time about the moment in a recording booth Mm. when the talent goes in to do a thing or when you're listening to the track and you go, oh, what if we did this? That moment where like the producer, and again, I look at this from as a TV producer, I think about this from the from the idea of sitting in that chair in the in the in the recording studio. The moment you realize, oh fuck. This thing is a hit. That must be just pure electricity that just drives through everyone's body. What is that moment like? You, you, you. I mean, hearing Lauren and Whitney Houston go back and forth, you must just be like, "What is my life?" Right? You, you can. But you, how can you even wrap your head around that moment? <laughs> you know, it is exhilarating. Oh. I mean, you know, I, I think I did it so much Mm. like I was just in a zone that I almost took it for granted and then it sort of suddenly ended in the last 18 months of my Arista Records career 
But, you know, I mean, I'm even thinking of like when Lauren produced the CeeLo record on the Santana album and we were like cracking up because she kept saying every time he opens his mouth, it's like a whole church jumped out <laughs> oh my of his like chest. And, you know, it was just, we were just having fun, you know, like it was, we loved it so much. And yeah, there were times we were like, yeah, we stepped in it, we stepped in it, you know, and it's just great to have that feeling but I think I also, in some ways, maybe took it for granted because it was, I just, I was like on a roll. Like I was fortunate enough to work with so many great people and to be trusted, you know, by Clive and so many of the incredible artists who were my friends to be part of these collaborations and to facilitate them. Um, you know, but I was also at the same time, like surviving being a woman in the music industry. Yeah. So I think in some ways, that stepped on the pure joy of it all because I was, I loved it so much. I loved the studio most of all. Um, But when I ended up having to navigate very difficult men, two in particular, really only two, I mean, I'm not saying the other people were all perfect, but I can just speak to my personal experience. It was just two, Um, you know, that made it hard to fully just stay in the moment of the joy let me tell you, uh, you being like, it was cool and it was great and it felt great, but like you kind of take it for granted. You know who else says that shit? Michael mm-hmm. Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Phil Jackson and Dennis Rodman, yeah. like those great legendary people and producers of this great basketball team and championship mm-hmm. drive. That's who says that stuff. You're like, we're just in the flow and we're doing this thing that we do and we're doing it to the best of our ability. And I love I, the ring. It's amazing that you can say that and mean yeah. it and your that your work uh, uh, needs no, uh, uh, no one needs to debate this. That your work is right there in black and white. Mm. I wanted you on this show because, as you've proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, your storytelling is just out of control. I'm <laughs> hanging off everything that you say. I find you absolutely fascinating. But as I watched the clip of you telling that incredible Method Man Mary J story, I was like, wait a minute, what is this from? Because I need to know this woman. I need to know what is it that she does, where does this come from? Let me, I want to see more. And I immediately looked it up, found on the record on HBO Max, immediately watched it and was completely moved and just wanted to meet you and talk to you and learn from you and support your story and support the truth. Tell me a bit about On the Record, uh, please. Thank you. On the Record is a documentary on HBO Max. I guess we're calling it Max Max, now. Yes, right. (laughs) I guess, allegedly. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's a documentary that foregrounds several of the survivors of Russell Simmons. Mm. And in the process, kind of excavates the additional hurdle that black women have to overcome and when coming forward, most sexual violence is intraracial mm. because most sexual violence involves people that, you know, mm. the idea of the, like, you know, rapist in a dark alley is 100% an anomaly and the exception to the rule. Most people are assaulted by people who groom them with whom they have relationships. Right and therefore trust enough to be in a situation where then they're obviously harmed. And so because of that, if you're a black woman, the likelihood is that your abuser is, is a black person more often than not a man. And therefore the 
hurdle you have to overcome when coming forward is your fear, mm. which I think is a very real fear. One fear is of being called disloyal mm. to the race. Mm. But another fear, even before you get there, and I didn't tell anyone publicly for 24 years. I mean, I told people close to me, they knew. I mean, it was a woman who was staying on my couch the night I came home. I mean, she knew. Um, but, you know, it's also the fear of giving fuel to the fire mm -hmm. of this myth mm -hmm. that black men are dangerous mm -hmm. and black men are predators. You know, the Central Park Five, right. the exonerated right. five, were totally innocent, but it was believable to many people in mainstream America that they could have done this terrible thing just because that's the way black men are perceived in America. I mean, men were lynched for false accusations of, you know, rape and other kinds of sexual impropriety that were completely made up. And so, I mean, even Trayvon Martin, right? I mean, literally George Zimmerman was acquitted because the jury literally believed this 16 year old kid could use the sidewalk as a lethal weapon against an adult man with a gun that he actually used to kill Trayvon. And somehow they believed the guy with the gun must have been so scared of the 16 year old kid who was going to wield the sidewalk against him that it was justifiable. And so, I mean, I have a black son who just walked in the door, six, one plays basketball, you know, it's a concern as a black woman that if you come forward, you're going to put a target on the backs of all the black men and boys you love. It's a concern that you're gonna put a target on the backs of the black men and boys that you love by throwing gasoline on this fire that paints innocent black men and boys as predators. And so one of the reasons I never came forward about Russell Simmons in 1995 I mean, there were so many reasons. One is that I didn't think people would believe me. I was, you know, I don't know. He was Russell Simmons. He was a really big deal. And I was assaulted like two weeks after the OJ verdict. Okay. I was in the Def Jam building when OJ was acquitted and we cheered so hard. I thought the building was going to come down. And so I didn't want to, I mean, obviously in hindsight, that's something that, you know, I think a lot of us view differently, but in the moment it was team OJ, it was team black man being vilified. Right. And I didn't want to give mainstream America a brand new mm -hmm. story of a, of a violent black man. And I knew that because of who he is. And frankly, my mother had just finished being the mayor of DC, maybe like 10 months earlier that this would be news. And I didn't want it to be news. I didn't want it to be news for hip hop's sake either. I mean, hip hop was pretty young still. I mean, I think the duet that I'm, you know, responsible for in concept won Def Jam its first Grammy. There wasn't even a rap category at the Grammys when I started working at Def Jam, I don't think. Certainly when I came to New York in 1992. So this was still a very young art form that people thought was going to be like disco or something. It was going to be a fad. And so I didn't want the king of hip hop, the guy who was sort of weaving it all together and taking it to the next level to go down because of this thing that he did to me, which it's hard to explain if you're not a victim of rape and it's hard even, 
you know, I mean, it's taken me decades to unpack it, but you feel so ashamed. You know, you feel like somehow it's your fault. And I also didn't know he was a serial predator until 2017 when two other women came forward about him and he called them liars. That's the only reason I went to the New York Times at all was because I was like, oh my God, he's done this to other people. When I was reading the New York Times article that I am in, the light bulb went off in my head and I realized there was never a CD. For the first time in 24 years, it wasn't until I read the New York Times article where other women explained that he lured them into situations where he then assaulted them, that like the light bulb went off in my head on December 13th or 14th, 2017, I was like, oh my God, there was no CD. Like literally from October, 1995, when I was raped to December, 2017, I still wondered what the CD was. That he lured you in with. And was it good? Oh my God. Like, honestly, I still was like, but I wonder if that CD was good. He said it was so good. And he knew that I would be like, he was like, Drew, you're going to love this. You have to come up and hear this. And I was like, really? He's like, oh my God, this is your shit. I was like, really? He's like, oh my God, I I heard this and I thought of you. You are going to love this. And so even after I was raped, years later, I'd still wondered, fuck, what was the CD though? I mean, I know that sounds crazy. It was like stuck in my head, like in this, like a pinball that was sort of stuck in my brain. I don't think I even realized it was the same night. I know that sounds weird, but I was like, there was some CD that he was going to play me. And I remember that. And I wonder if it was good, but I don't know when that was. And then I was reading the article that I'm in. And I was like, Oh my God, there was no CD. Oh my God. That was the same night. (gasps) And so that's what on the record is about. It's about, my decision to come forward and the other women, some of the other women who came forward and the unique double bind that black women face, knowing that our experience can be weaponized against all the other innocent black men and boys out there. And also that we'll be called traitors, which we don't want to be called. You know, I mean, I'm not a traitor. I love my people. So that's why it took me 24 years. I don't know if that's the right math, but a long time. And I only really did it because two other women came forward that I don't know. I don't know them to this day, but their stories were really similar. And I wanted to back them up when he called them liars. And I went into the New York Times off the record. But as it turns out, just coincidentally, the person that gave me Jody Cantor's contact information at the New York Times is a mom at my kid's school whose husband was making a documentary about me too. And when I texted her and said, by the way, I am going to go see Jody Cantor tomorrow. She said, I know this is crazy, but is it okay if Dan sends a film crew to follow you? That's how it all started. And I never in a million years thought it would become a movie. I never in a million years thought it would become a movie I would have to fight for. Um, and I never in a million years thought that I would ever emerge as somebody who's like so vocal about this issue, but you know, I looked up and I had the rock. I had to bring it down the court, 
I don't know what else to say, you know? Well, I, uh, thank you for sharing your story and thank you for telling that. And thank you for agreeing to have the film crew join you and thank you for stepping forward and I believe you and thank you. It means a lot that you're sharing this. And you know, the, the, it sort of requires a strength and a ferocity that I can't really wrap my head around completely to understand what you've done as a, as a man and a not black man. Um, I just don't really, I, I'm hearing everything you're saying, but I'm afraid that I can't exactly even understand it completely. And that makes me feel insufficient in this moment, which I apologize for. And th the one thing I do want to say is, and I, and I, I uh, do not like uh, promoting a company like Max during these strikes that we're going mm. through the, the writers and the screen actors strikes um, but to me, it's very important that your story not be uh, lost in the shuffle of these strikes and, and, and mm. uh, you know, this, these digital distributors, et cetera. I think uh, every, I think everyone, but particularly men should make sure that they watch this doc. I was completely moved. I feel like I learned things and I, it made me want to have more conversations. And I think that the work starts there. And uh, that's my humble, very humble addition to what you've said, which needs no, um, no support from me. Uh, uh, again, thank you for sharing it. It means a lot to me. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you for saying that. It's, it's true. I appreciate it. Do you have advice? The concept of separating the art from the artist, and you go into this a little bit during the doc, the, the, the misogyny, the violence, even the racism at times, all being baked into music. Yeah. And in particularly music that, like, I grew up with. Mm -hmm. That's become, like, part of my upbringing. There are songs that mean something to me because I like them. And now in my adulthood, I realize that's kind of fucked up what they're actually saying here, if you think about it. And people say separate the art from the artist. I never, I struggle with that concept a lot. Do you have any advice on how people who care should deal with that issue? It's tough. You know, I struggle with it myself because, you know, I, I love hip hop and there are records that I adore mm -hmm. that are really problematic. And the more I heal, the more obvious it is to me how problematic they are. I feel like I was trauma bonded to hip hop. Mm -hmm. You know, I just was so inured to the misogyny and the misogynoir that I grew up with mm -hmm. my whole life that it didn't stand out to me. I just sort of learned to laugh it off. Mm -hmm. And now the more I heal, the more it's hard to really go back and listen to it. But on the other hand, I, I feel like it, it really all depends. I mean, I feel like, you know... Mute R. Kelly, you know, I, I, I respect that movement and that hashtag and have so much respect for the decades of advocacy that brought him to justice ultimately. I also think it's a little bit clearer there because a lot of the material really is kind of aligned with his predation. I mean, he's really spelling it all out and so it's really hard to enjoy mm -hmm. when you realize that it was the soundtrack to abuse and it really feels like that on the other hand there are artists that i think are wrestling with it right i mean and then you think about painters i mean was picasso 
a perfect person. I'm guessing not Mozart, right? Where do we, where does it end? And so, you know, but then again, like Woody Allen, like it's like, it's, it's, he's got like a teenage girlfriend in Manhattan. So that's kind of easy. Like that's just gross. Right. Um, but you know, I don't know. Michael Jackson, complicated, right? Man in the mirror. I think he's trying to process it. So I think there's something to be said for not starting all over again. Maybe there's something to learn if we listen and we join in with this person that was wrestling with his demons as opposed to somebody that was just sort of glorifying their demons. So that's the question. Is it, you know, what is the intent, right? Um, it's a tough one. You know, I, I struggle with it to this day. I don't have the answer. Um, I also think, however, that in some cases, I mean, there was some artist whose, whose, you know, material I think was just taken down and I can't remember who it was, but it's like, in some cases, if there's a, like, I think it was maybe as R. Kelly, like the victims were finally going to get some reward mm. from the catalog. Mm. And so then if we mute it, right. are we are we right. are we cutting off the one possible remedy, something that could be, you know, consideration or care, some resource for these victims by canceling the revenue stream of the artist. So maybe if it's a more explicit way that we can literally know that if it's if they're if they've been, you know, convicted then maybe there's a fund and it automatically goes there. And then like we can start listening again because we know it's going to the right people. I don't think we've solved for that as a society. I think that's one reason we really struggle when these accusations are made because it's sort of like, what do we do with this person who was so embedded in the culture? And there are so many tentacles, the more powerful they are. How do you even unwind that? And I think people then just throw their hands up in the air. It's like going back to the founding fathers of America. Do we take them off the money? Yeah. I mean, what do we do? You know, do we, what about all the statues and all the monuments? Like, are we, what do we do? And so then it's just like, okay, well, we do nothing. I, I, I you know, the, 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 this stuff, it does matter. It does matter. And I don't have the answer. I mean, I wish I was smart enough to have this answer or to come up with something brilliant to say in this moment. But the one thing I want to say is I feel like it does matter. Like there's a reason those, it does. The, the whatever it was, the Confederate daughters of the, I can't remember the name of the group that they mm-hmm. went and put up all of the statues of the people in the South to, to deify them and to make them seem like they're great people. So if you hear some story in 50 years, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? The guy with the statue in, right. the, in the middle of town? Like it, it's, they, they do that. Those things, they do matter. Well, Germany didn't do that. Germany, right. there are no, like they're very, clear like they do not glorify or in whitewash or sanitize the holocaust Mm. and nazi germany because they don't want to repeat it so they actually that's a template right there and um it does matter because you know it has a chilling effect on survivors Mm -hmm. when these monuments Mm -hmm. are platformed and whether the monument is an actual monument of you know people that brutally enslaved your ancestors or whether it's just the platforming of Russell Simmons, it makes you feel smaller. I mean, 
you know, now I'm speaking out. Now I have this power. Now the rebounder is back and I'm out here advocating for survivors. But for 24 years, I wouldn't even tell my own kids in a cab that I had anything to do with the Mary Meth duet or Maria Maria or My Love is Your Love because I had nothing to show for it. And I was ashamed that I had nothing to show for it. So for 24 years, I was silenced and small. And if Me Too hadn't happened, I probably would have gone to my grave never telling these stories, never really re-emerging with my full power because the world wanted Russell Simmons to be Russell Simmons. It wanted him to occupy that space. And in that space, I'm nothing. So in order for him to go ahead and be who he is, his victims essentially had to just disappear into the corners and, and essentially fade away. And so it does matter. I don't have the solution, but I'm here to tell you when abusers are coddled, enabled, excused, you are crushing the spirit of survivors around you that you don't even know are survivors. We are all watching. It's part of why I fought so hard for On the Record, even when Oprah Winfrey exited, because I knew that if that movie died, especially right at the, you know, like one yard line, it was right there. You know, the chilling effect that would have on all the Russell Simmons survivors in the film and the survivors who I knew were kind of watching. I just felt that cost for survivors. They had to see somebody fighting. They had to see somebody willing to run it into the end zone. And so I just did again, like I go back to the rebounder. I go back, you know, like this is going to hurt. Oprah Winfrey's a big deal, but I'm going to just, I'm going to get, I'm going to get it in. I'm going to get, I'm going to get across this one yard line because I can't live with not doing it. So I'm just going to head, I'm going to go ahead and do it. This, this feels like maybe too personal of a thing to say to you, um, given the fact that I don't know you, but it is how I feel right now in this moment. And that's to say, I feel like your family are all very proud of you and what you've done. I hope so. I hope so. That would mean everything to me. Thank you so much again for doing this. Let's let's jump in, decide whether this thing's going to make the first belt Hall of Fame. To do that, we have to go through our Hall of Fame credentials. Those are the categories by which I judge okay. every moment. The first one, analytics. I've got some numbers. I've got some stats I need to read off for you. But then I've got a big question that I'm going to throw at you. Rolando Blackman played 12 minutes in this game. Pat Riley closed with him on the floor. That's telling. He was three or four from the field for six points, one rebound, and one assist. Rolando Blackman in the series before this game was eight of 26 and two of his last 13 in games two and three. So an efficient game here from him in game four to give the Knicks a commanding lead. Big Pat Patrick Ewing monster game 28 on 13 of 21 shooting 10 boards, one assist, one steal, three blocks on the Charlotte side, LJ, Larry Johnson, grandma, ma 24, four and three Kendall Gillhead 21. I like to mention Kendall Gill anytime I can Kenny Gaddison for any of you with buzz fever. Kenny Gaddison had eight points in 13 minutes. The Knicks bench played well. Anthony Mason had played 29 minutes, only one shot attempt in this game. He did have seven boards, two steals and a block, just doing what it takes to win the game. Just like me. That's why I've long been compared to Anthony Mason. Okay. The Knicks won game one big. Game two, overtime thriller. The Knicks win that. Game three, Charlotte 
Uh, double overtime for the Hornets uh, that pushes us to game four. That's our game here. The Knicks yep. end up beating Charlotte in five before going on to face Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls in the Eastern Conference Finals. The Knicks won games one and two, but then dumped the next four to MJ Pippen and company. Yep. Brutal collapse for the Knicks. Uh, last, I didn't realize this. The Knicks that season won 60 games, 60 and 22, and they were the number one seed of the East over the Bulls. Okay, we've Ooh. arrived there a moment. Those are all the stats behind this moment. Now the question is to you, Drew. Why the hell are we talking about this game? <laughs> <laughs> so I was watching that series yes. with my friend and mentor, Gary Harris. Okay. Gary Harris is a was dearly departed character, brilliant, huge Knicks fans. Okay. I mean, they were his Knicks, my Knicks. <laughs> he referred to them as my Knicks. And Gary and I would watch basketball together in the middle of Gary really kind of being the first A&R person I ever met. Got it. Gary was really good friends with my aunt, Jalisa Hazard, Walt Hazard's uh, now widow. Right. Um, and so Gary loved basketball, part of how he became so tight with my Hazard family. And we watched basketball together. He also signed D'Angelo and that's how I know D and, you know, whatever. So but Gary had this like uncanny sixth sense and we're watching the game and Gary like honestly was borderline like prescient. Like mm. I think now we would say he was like maybe had Asperger's. Right, right, right. Because he was like, Gary would like a Toni Morrison novel would come out. He would read it like in a day. Mm. But he like also wouldn't go to work until 4 p.m. And that was maybe once a week. And then it was like, but why weren't you in the meeting? He's like, yeah, I was at mobile with Sean Penn. And it's like, okay, that's cool, but that's not what they're paying you to do. He's like, it kind of is. It's like, no, but it is. You know what I mean? Like, it actually really isn't. So, you know, Gary and I were watching this game. And he, I'm stressed out. You know, I'm like, oh, my God, are the Knicks going to make it? He's like, Rolanda's going to come in. Last five minutes, he's going to hit that corner jumper. I'm like, what? Or I think it was a corner jumper. Was it a corner jumper? I think, it's a, I think it's towards the top. He came from the corner. I think he goes to the top. Of okay. The okay. With top, okay. He's going to come in. He's going to hit a jumper. It's going to, it's, it's going to do it. I was like, that's ridiculous. I was like, he's cold. He's ice cold. He's Rolando. He doesn't even play. Like, <laughs> no, like that's supposed to make me feel better. That, I feel worse. That the fact that you are like, I, I am fucked up now. Like that is definitely not like the statistical probability of that happening is zero. And now I am really upset. It's definitely not going to happen. And I'm like, I think I'm like saying that to him. And he's like, yo, money, money. Look, money. He comes in. I'm like, okay, all right, fine. He came in, whatever. He's And then Uh, it happens. uh, He hits the jumper. I burst into tears. Oh my God. I just started bawling. And it was just the beauty of it. Mm. It was, you know, it was just like, it was the beauty of that moment and it happened Mm. and that's it. So it's not even really, it's just a moment that for me speaks to how much I love the game. You know, there was a commercial once, I don't know if it was, I don't know, it was, it was the NBA or if it was some like sports, you know, some like, you know, sportswear team where it was the whole commercial was a, ki- a tight shot of a kid on the bench, mm-hmm. just following every play. And at the end, they like hoist him up when they win yeah. and he's crying. Yeah. Like I was that kid. Oh my gosh. 
in fourth and fifth grade. And so when, when he came in and he hit the jumper and he won, I like burst into tears because it was just, it's the love of the game. Yes. It was for the love of the game. It was like a beautiful, anything oh. can happen. It's why you play the game. Oh my God. Why you play the game. Cause See, you don't know. You have this magical ability to make me care about a sports moment <laughs> that I know I've been doing this for a year now. Like I've looked at all these moments. I'm like pulling them apart. You are touching on the one, like your magic ability is to make me care about this moment that I go, I should not care about this moment. It's not good enough, but you're drawing me in. (laughs) It's not, it's really not good enough, but it was just, (laughs) you know, I love that. I thought maybe she's got a personal connection to Rolando Blackman. (laughs) In my head, I'm like, maybe she knows Rolando Blackman. Maybe she (laughs) met Rolando Blackman. Maybe someone cared about Rolando Blackman. For no. you to start this story by going, Rolando Blackman's not going to make this shot. For you to be attacking <laughs> Rolando Blackman, I thought for certain he would be at the heart, like the tip of the spear for why <laughs> we're talking about this moment. He is the reason you you thought the Knicks were going to lose. You're attacking yes. that man. Oh, Fantastic. absolutely. <laughs> it's such yeah. a – I love also that you – and I've talked about this on the show before as well – I love big runs in in NBA games because the ball the guy misses the shot and the like Clay Thompson we did Clay Thompson's like thirty seven yeah. point quarter or whatever it was mm. the you, you see the shot get missed and you see the guy grab the rebound and you go they're gonna throw it up to Clay Thompson he's gonna hit that shot you just yeah. know it you can mm-hmm. feel it mm-hmm. and it's like so crazy that we all watch the game and go I know this he's gonna make this shot and he's gonna get fouled and the gym is gonna go nuts and they're yeah. gonna call the timeout and then it all happens. And it all happens. It's so fascinating. It's and I do think, and my I've said this on the show before too. I think my wife is a witch. She has the same <laughs> prescience. Really? And she, like I told you earlier about list, believing, the, being in the moment and listening to the moment and following it. That's my wife talking. I was mm-hmm. never that way growing up. Mm-hmm. I was pure black and white logic, science. If you can't prove it, it doesn't exist. And that Mm. woman upstairs has opened my eyes to this. And now I watch basketball and go, why did I know that was going in? Why did Mm -hmm. I, why was I certain that was going to happen? And I don't have Mm -hmm. the answer, but I do think it's fascinating to think about those moments. And I love that's at the heart of this for you as well. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Fascinating. We got to move on to the, the next credential. It's the eye test. What did we see in this moment? I talked to Drew about this before. I, she picks this moment and I go, man, I'd love to talk about this moment, but I've never seen this game. And how the hell am I going to find it? EJ Cabasal, my new producer, found this moment. Some absolute sick. I don't think I've seen this moment since that day. I can't wait to send it to you. It'll be on our on our socials at First Ballot oh Pod gosh. on Twitter at First wow. Ballot uh, HOF on Instagram. Some absolute sicko named Nat Suli on YouTube uploaded the entire edited 1993 Knicks playoff run. What a maniac. Uploaded this, a near eight-hour video uh, to YouTube, so I was able to watch the game. My favorite thing in watching, uh, Rolando Blackman, I believe he comes to the top of the key. It's the only reason I know this, because, again, I did not see this, and it's not a moment anyone cares about except for Drew Dixon, which I appreciate. My favorite moment in watching this is right after the game that, you know, the, the Muggsy Bogues tries to, to get even or tries to, I think, they, to take the one-point lead. He has the, the last shot. He loses the ball. Patrick Ewing grabs it, and the game's over. Uh, okay. Right after the game, Charles Oakley walks out onto the court and is holding 
the sign that it's clear the Charlotte Hornets organization has printed up all of these signs and put them in all of the seats. And it says, we believe, be like the bee. Like right, the right, right, right. And Charles yeah. Oakley is holding it up and taunting the Charlotte fans with it. And then just it. tosses it in the air. Like you guys lost. Yeah, and he just tosses it up it. in the air. And it's just perfect Charles Oakley content. And I love right. the fact that I found that moment. That is fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. I the other thing I didn't know, and this is probably wasting your time with this question, uh, did uh, th- you know they go we believe, and I'm like they're hornets. Hornets aren't bees, and no, I think the conflation of those two is a, is a mixed message from the Horn- Charlotte Hornets. I just want to put that out there. Lazy, it's lazy. And then I'm like pre- prepping for the show, and I go bees and bumblebee, and I'm going wait, are bees bumblebees? Did you know that all bees aren't bumblebees? What? <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm actually so blown away by this that I'm not a hundred percent certain I'm right. But I think I was under the impression that if you if this is a bee and you see a bee, it's right. short for, bum- for bumblebee. It's short for bumblebee. It's not. What? There, there are honeybees and there are bumblebees and there are yellow jackets and but they're not all bumblebees. Yellow jackets or bees? <laughs> well, I don't even know. Not like yellow jackets were like wasps or hornets. <laughs> They might be. I don't <gasps> think this is worth our time, but I do appreciate that you are also stunned. as stunned by this as I'm well. stunned, actually. <laughs> it's time for the ear test. What did we hear in this moment? Let's listen to the clip together. I've got the audio. Okay. Here it is. John Hammond and Steve Snapper Jones on the call. They're going to try to spread the floor and get Hubert Davis in a position where he may be able to get a shot. There's Davis against Gill. Is that how you remember it, Drew? You know, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, it's, 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 what do we hear? It's, it's not, it's not much. It's not much. (laughs) But, you know, it's just anybody can hit from anywhere. You know, that's sort of a guiding philosophy of mine, especially anybody real Mm -hmm. who gets a look, Mm -hmm. clean look, or even a half look. Play them honest. You know, it's what I it's what I believe in. You know, like anybody good can hit. Yep. Can step in and and, and and that's a beautiful thing, you know? Uh, it's lovely. Uh, the the thing that stuck out to me is there's like this crazy buzz on the video. And I yes. was like going, is that because some lunatic recorded it on VHS and then converted it to YouTube, you know, 20 something years later. Is that where the buzz comes from? But I listened to, I watched the rest of the game and realized that buzz is a buzz. The Charlotte PA system put on during the game to be distracting from the Knicks. It's like, yes. Which again, I feel like is, I guess it's gamesmanship and I should be fine with it. I should appreciate the fact that some guy is, yes, trying to, you know, put his, uh, thumb on the scale and, and affect yeah, the outcome of this game. But again, the buzz from bees and hornets, yeah. I don't know if it's the same I thing. I don't want to hang too much on buzz? this. I just think maybe we need to straighten out our entomology here. Uh, I if think we do. Bugs. I'm not even do sure. hornets even buzz? I don't, I don't know. know. Listen, I think it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. Think about. Here's the, here's the second clip from this game. Uh, this is the end, end of the end of the game after the game is already over. 
94-92 is the final score and the clutch shot, the game winner, off the hand of the veteran from Kansas State, Rolando Blackman. I mean, so the final score, New York 94, Charlotte. Just fantastic. I One of the two things I want to bring up here are, one, the name Rolando Blackman is so good. It's so good. It, it's just how is that real? It's how is it real? Exactly. Can you imagine whichever parent named him like was like Rolando. we got to go with Rolando? You nailed exactly. it. Nailed it. Absolutely oh, nailed it. God, I just love it. Nailed it. it. Makes me so happy when it when there's a good name involved in a sports moment. I go, this is extra mm. point. This is this stuff. This is the stuff that matters. And then also the John Tesh uh, NBA round ball rock there for NBC. I mean, <laughs> tough to ignore here with music. Going back for sure. <laughs> Even with theme music, I find a lot of people that say sort of like music was better back in my day. Uh, and I'm sort of of the mindset that if you hear enough people say that, and like my old man said that, I feel like everybody's old man who says music was better yeah. in my day. Dude, don't you have to start to believe it because you've heard it. So many people say it and think it. Think music so. today is it is it was it better back then should we yes, not have put better. the the full power of the music industry and the decision making process into the hands of tiktok what what are your thoughts we on the music not. industry today? we should not the algo should not be creating culture because it's just it's sort of like it's backing it out from the sort of the the biggest sort of common denominator as opposed to taste mm. and let's lead mm. let's drop something new let's level up let's innovate it's very hard to do that if you are crowdsourcing your right. culture right are you I, and i saw at the end of the doc that you're getting back into producing your own music which really filled my heart and made me happy do you are you working on new stuff that you're excited about I am. I'm working with a young new artist named Ella Wilde, the one who appears mm. with me at the end of mm. the doc. And we are actually working on a musical together where we're taking a bunch of songs that I wrote when I was a stay-at-home mom and a bunch of her songs. And we're sort of telling our story of unlocking each other's power uh, through music. And we're working on a musical and I'm really excited oh my about God, it. God, that sounds amazing. That sounds absolutely amazing. Um, well, good luck with that. I, I hope that it uh, comes you. to fruition. The next credential, Bernie questions, Drew Dixon, you've already sort of said, you know, that this is very specific to you. Does the fact that the Knicks lost this in the Eastern Conference Finals and then never won a title in this era, does it hurt this moment's chances of making the first Bell Hall of Fame? It's the, it's the type of hard question. I, I think it, in some ways it helps because it's just, well, I guess oh, if, I, it, if I get like objectively right. why you would say it was the turning yes. point, but then there would be other right. moments after that would have been, you know, I think it was sort of like the, the bookend of like their swagger. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I feel like, you know, what really was that era like, mm -hmm. that era of the Knicks, just, you know, the Knicks and the Pacers, the Knicks and the Bulls, like it was a moment. Yes. And I think that moment sort of captures the, 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 the scrappy yeah. moment that the Knicks in the 90s represented. So I don't know. I feel like it's, it's kind of emblematic. I love it. And I feel like that scrappiness is emblem is, is part of every Pat Riley team too. Like, I feel mm. like that has followed him around his entire career is like a, who, next guy up, step in, make the big play. You're not too small for the moment. Step into this position yes. and him sort of empowering those people to do that. feels like a part of this as well. Yeah. Um, I do want you to know that the Jeff Van Gundy 
leg fight with Alonzo Mourning that that is in the first ballot Hall of Fame. I do want you to know is that there really? is a moment in the yeah, and it's uh, it's Jeff, it's the coach of the Knicks holding on to Alonzo Mourning's leg and being that dragged on the coach. It's the type of sports moment hilarious. that we, we we like here. Uh, I, I do want you to know that those '90s Knicks are represented in the Hall. I appreciate that so much. Uh, Drew Dixon, <laughs> it's time for the cosign. The floor okay. is yours. The mic is yours. Does Rolando Blackman's game-winning shot from the 93 playoffs, game four, does it belong in the first ballot Hall of Fame and why? It does not. <laughs> it belongs in my personal Hall of Fame as a wonderful sports moment, but it does not like objectively belong in any Hall of Fame of sports moments. It doesn't. I'm not going to even make that argument. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for the induction speech. That's when I get to make this decision. It is was so much fun listening to you talk about it. It's the exact sort of specificity I love. To to feed to go. I know Drew Dixon. Her favorite sports moment is when Rolando Blackman hit a game winner at the end of the game. That's so fun to say, and I feel like it says a lot about you that you were that specific, that you had such a personal story, and that that story was so lovely to listen to when you told it in such a great way. It is a great sports moment. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing it. It's not going to go into the first ballot hall of fame, but that it's the reason I got the chance to meet you and talk to you and learn from you today. will make it special in my book for a long, long time. Drew Dixon, how can people follow you and support you? What are you working on? I'm on Twitter at dear Drew Dixon and I'm on Instagram at dear Drew Dixon. And I am working on a bunch of cool things, some with music, some inspired by music. And um, I'll keep you posted. Thank you so much for coming on and doing this. Your stories were amazing. You should do an audio book, a pocket, do something. My God, Uh, we all want to support you. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. That's it. That's the show. My sincere thanks to Drew Dixon. I don't really know how she does what she's doing but she inspires me and I hope you all share her work with someone you care about credits Jessica Seng produces the show Robbie Bobby Arucci edits it EJ Kawasal is the new guy DA David Estramskis is our Paul's Life producer Rhythm J makes all the beats please rate and review us if you enjoy the show or you, you feel strongly about it one way or the other and please come back next week for more First Ballot Blackwood.